Our God in heaven, we indeed trust that you are here with us, and it is out of faith that we believe that story, that we uh, are temples of your presence dwelling in our bodies, and we long for you to make your presence felt tonight, right now. Remind us of your love for us, your delight in us, and through that love and delight, please continue to transform us. We need you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So if you've been with us this past two weeks, we're in this series called Sacred Space, and a lot of the fact that we now own this space and how to understand what sacred space even is. So sacred space starts with creation. So let's give a quick summary of creation and fall. Sacred space starts with creation, where God makes all of creation to be his temple for his presence to dwell. His life-giving, wisdom-giving presence is here to dwell in creation. That's what it's made for. But did God need a place to dwell? No, he has everything he needs. So really, he made it for us. This whole world is meant functional and ordered for us to dwell and thrive in with his presence. And then he partnered with us to help us be a part of his creation project, to mediate his presence through the world and gather the world's praises up back to him. But we insisted on doing it our own way creating our own path and insisted on being gods. We all participate in that story of the fall that Adam and Eve did. And when we did that, we lost God's presence. We were cut off from sacred space. There was no longer any sacred space in the world. No overlap between heaven and earth. So God was present in that he could see and witness and watch all things, but his life-giving, wisdom-giving, relatable, personal presence was not available. And wasn't for a long time. And so now we're going to move to the next part of the story where God works to get his people back so that he can fulfill what he started and dwell with them again. And he does that through the promise. And so he makes a promise to Abram in chapter 12. And we're going to read that now if you want to go with me in your Bibles. Otherwise, it'll be on the screen, because praise God. And look, your boy's even got a color-coded man, so I'm trying to tell you how his promise to Abraham is a renewal of the creation project. So let's read this together. Let me show this, check this out. Now the Lord said to Abram, he eventually becomes Abraham later on in the story, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went just as the Lord had told him. So in creation, God just starts with Adam and Eve, and he creates them out of sheer grace. There was nothing he needed from them, nothing they clearly earned to be made because they didn't even exist. It is out of love and grace. In the same way, he chooses Abram and his wife Sarai out of love and of grace. They were pagans. They, did not, they were not proper worshipers of God. The last thing we see of God before this story, he's tearing down the tower that they built at Babel and scattering people all over the place. That's the last instance of his action in the story. And he just selects Abram out of the blue from a family of pagan worshipers out of sheer grace, just as he chose Adam and Eve. And then, just as he gave Adam and Eve a little piece of land of Eden to start with, that from there they were going to learn to experience God's presence and learn to, to uh, mediate his presence. They were then supposed to be fruitful and multiply and take what was in Eden and spread it through the earth. It says to be multiply and fill the earth. 
not just with babies, but with God's life-giving presence through their children, and they're passing that on. So they start with the land, and he tells Abraham that he's going to give his family a land. He wants to restart this creation project of, of starting with one family that's given one space to make that space right. And as they make that right, he's going to then ask them to expand that out. And so he says, I'm going to give you lots of children to do that. A great nation. They have no children yet. He's not only a pagan worshiper, he's like a grown old man, 75 years old with no kids, and his wife is barren. But he's like, I'm going to make a whole family out of you. And through that family now, through that family and that land, those are just starting points. I'm not choosing you, God says, for salvation, for some special privilege. I'm choosing you for a vocation, for a purpose to be sent out to what it says, bless all other families and nations. That he's going to bless them so that they will be a blessing. And what's blessing, anyway? What does that even mean? We, our culture, when we use that and we see that word, it might be on social media. Somebody's off on some beach somewhere, driving a fancy car, hashtag blessed. That's how we see the word blessing sometimes used in our culture. Or we say bless you when someone sneezes, which why? And so, but blessing in the Bible is more a granting of God's favor and protection. So this is the promise of a renewal of his life-giving, protective presence that was lost in the fall. It was lost by our mistake, our choice, and God promises to give it back by through Abraham's family. He's going to go through his family to make a way to dwell with them again. That is the blessing, and it's going to be made available to all nations. And so then what happens in the story? How does it continue, and how does it move on? Abram spends 25 years, and he encounters God six times as he waits for the promise to be fulfilled. There's no Bible. There's no clear way to understand this. God's presence is not with him like he's in you. He's not there. He's distant. And it says six times he appears to him and has a conversation, and Abram builds like an altar to him. And then he's back. He's gone away. And Abram has to wait for that long for God to finally fulfill the beginning of the promise to give him one kid. And then Abram dies after he's had his one kid with Sarah. And then the people of God keep waiting a long time. They keep waiting a long time. But this is out of sheer grace he's chosen Abram and his family. I forgot to give my quote, man. Put my quote from Levinson so I can read that real quick. This is how, how much God's grace is involved with this whole process. The man without a country will inherit a whole, a whole land. The man with the barren wife will have plenteous offspring. And the man who has cut himself off from kith and kin, because he went away from his family, will be pronounced blessed by all the families of the earth. This is God's sheer grace, renewing what was broken by us, restarting what he started in creation. And so then we have that big, long waiting game where God hardly experiences community with Abraham. We read this story in the comfort of our homes. We'll sit down and read these pages. You can read the whole story in like 30 minutes. And yet for Abraham, he's experiencing decades of life in between interactions and wondering what is going on. Maybe I've been hallucinating. Maybe I had like a weird illusion and this is not actually true. And now I'm suddenly away from my family, wandering around the desert, not knowing where I'm supposed to be. But he waits patiently and then he finally gives him a son. And then the people of God wait forever, man. They go to slavery for 400-something years. They then get a temple, and then they wait longer, and then they have a peak with David, and then there's a thousand more years 
before God really makes his promise known. And all that time, the people called and promised to make things right failed to do so. And so God has to fulfill the promise to Abraham through the person of Jesus, who himself was a physical descendant of Abraham. And so let's read how, how God does that in Galatians uh, 3 and 4. Check this out. Paul's writing to his community in Galatia. There's some former Jewish people who become Christians and are very much struggling to know what parts of their story they're wanting to embrace from their history with, with Judaism and how Jesus is fulfillment of that. Check this out in verse 20. What did I start with? 26. Come on now. My confidence monitor is gone, man. It's not working. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Look at all this. Like God was far away from Abraham. Abraham. It changes. It puts an H in there when he ratifies the covenant later on. He's far away from them. He appears to them from afar, and now he's saying, you're in God. You're in Christ, and he's in you. As many of you were baptized into Christ, that's how much communion you now have with God. Have clothed yourselves with him. You're so like enshrouded around him. He was distant from Abraham and the people of God as the promise was very slowly being fulfilled. But with uh, in Jesus now, we are like clothed in God. God cannot like get close enough to us. It's like if you have that pet that just needs to be petted all the time, like rubbed up on. That's how close God wants. He needs to be in us. He wants to be all the way in us. Then, then check this out. There is now no longer Jew or Greek, no longer slave or free, no longer male or female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. This is fundamental to the gospel. All the rivalries, all the sources of division. We read, we read last week from the fall that at the curse, that's when enmity between man and woman started, and Jesus is breaking that down. You're now no longer male or female in the kingdom of God. You're all one. Racism, that is the norm for ethnicities to fight each other and to be in rivalries. In Jesus, that has been fulfilled because now all people will be blessed through the one descendant of Abraham. That is like core to the gospel. People are like, just preach the gospel, don't talk about that is the kind of social things. It's fundamental. Here Paul is summing up the gospel, and he's also saying that, that Christ has torn down those walls by blessing all nations, by blessing all the families of the earth, as he said he would do to Abraham 2,000 years before this. And if you belong to Christ, if all this stuff's true, you're not Abraham's offspring because you're heirs according to the promise. So it was such a mystery, those 2,000 years of waiting, that God had chosen Abraham and his family. How would it be through the Israelites and through that little land that was the promised land, God would somehow find a way to bless all nations through them, especially when the people of Israel messed up over and over and over again, as would any other people group had they been the ones to be selected. There wasn't anything especially bad about them. If he would have picked anybody, the whole function of that was to demonstrate that any nation chosen would have made those same mistakes and failed. And so God, though, insisted that his promise had to be kept. He did not want to wipe it all away and do it some different way. He couldn't. It would fundamentally go against his character to do so. So he kept his promise through the one faithful Israelite by he himself becoming that person, becoming Jesus, 
and through the death and resurrection of Jesus, tore down that war that existed between him and us and the walls that exist between rival human groups that have been functioned as hating one another. And because of that, we now are recipients of that promise. The promise to Abraham that he would bless Abraham and through him bless all nations is now given to those who are in Christ. That's you. You now are a recipient of that promise and an heir to that promise. You are Abraham's child. And then we get this reminder that we are indeed, and this is what Pentecost Sunday is all about, we remember the Spirit being given to the people of God. And because you are children, God has sent His Spirit, the Spirit of His Son, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This is where the story of sacred space is going. All of creation was sacred space, where God, where heaven and earth would overlap, where God would overlap with his people, where he would be in perfect communion with people. The people are totally different than him. He's totally distinctive from creation, but they were meant to dwell in communion together. All that was lost, and no human being had any way to get it back. But through Jesus, God gave us it back. And now his presence is ready to dwell inside your physical body. You're like, man, but I don't feel like it. It ain't about what you feel. This is just facts, man. We're just declaring reality here. It just transcends your emotions. The fact that God's presence is dwelling in your physical body now. And so we are recipients of that promise, and we celebrate that with Pentecost, and we live into that each day. But for now, let's remember this part of the story. That literally 4,000 years ago from now, and 2,000 years pre-Jesus, God chose one man who had no family, who had no land. He said, I'm going to give you a family and a land, and through your people, I'm going to get to that end of the story. Sometimes we need to be reminded of that, not so we can learn some little lesson about Abram's example, but so that we can be reminded with some reverence and awe of what story we are dwelling in. It's a huge story, and in a world where we have lived and crunched small stories that wish to make us small and make us motivated by fear and violence and hatred and foster turmoil and be scared to death, this is our story in the people of God, where he has found a way to dwell in us and overcame every obstacle to do so, and in doing so, blessed all families of the earth that are allowed to join in that in free grace. And so then what do we learn about God in that case? That God is a God who makes and keeps promises. He's a God who makes and keeps promises, and he's a God who is committed to his people permanently and exclusively. There will not be another people. He's not going to cheat on us, so to speak. He's picked one, and he's committed to those people permanently. And so even when he fulfilled that promise to the people of Israel over the course of millennia, even amidst their failure, he, we can trust now, looking back on that, that he will do that for us. He's not going to give up on us because of our failure and weakness, of which we have many. He has promised to bring that story to completion, and we can look backwards to see how he fulfilled it with certainty to trust that he will indeed fulfill it permanently in the future as well. So this is the kind of God we have. He makes and keeps promises, and he will permanently and exclusively commit to us in that. All right, let's bring this down to the ground then. What's that mean for us living this life now? Here's what I'm going to talk about that was kind of taken to the ground. If that's how God works through a covenantal relationship, a promise 
between him and his people, I want to argue that he still forms us through covenant relations with him and his people. Some of you will be like, hang on a second, did we jump from two to four? Yes, we did, because I edited and forgot to change the number. So uh, we skip number three, it's around the ether somewhere, and we go straight to number four to talk about the fact that God still forms us in covenant relationships with him and his people. He invites us into a covenant with him and his people that is binding. And so what does that mean then? It means that we're called to embrace binding commitments in a culture that idolizes freedom. If we follow a God who makes permanent and binding commitments to his people, for him to form us as he formed the people of Israel and the early church, he calls us to live into binding commitments as well. And our culture heavily idolizes freedom. Check out this quote from Mark Sayers, The Road Trip That Changed the World. Love this dude. He says, In a biblical worldview, commitment leads to fruitfulness. The powers that work against God's plan for the world will always undermine our commitments, always fill us with the fear of relational entrapment. Powers and principalities of this world deal in commitment phobia. Y'all know I'm talking about you, man. All of us struggle with this. Even people like, hey, I want to commit to you coming to my house for dinner in a month. I'm like, hang on a second. Something may arise in a month about which I don't know right now, and I don't know if I can commit to be there in a month. There might be a lot of things happening between now and then. But that commitment phobia spreads out far beyond that. Sarah also argues that for humans to flourish, this is just how we are made, we need intention, three things. Significance, like a meaning in life, purpose, community and relationships, and freedom. And what he argues is in the West, in our culture, our freedom bucket is overflowing. People on the progressive and cultural right and the progressive and the, and the cultural political left both have an idolatry of freedom where the narrative in the script is don't let anybody or anything or any institution, any human group have any like trapping on you. You need to flee from all those things, head off into the woods, away from all who would wish to trap you and repress you, discover inside who you really are, and then go be that person. And erase anything that would be a binding commitment to you. And what Mark Sayers argues, and I'm convinced by, is when the freedom bucket is overloaded, that usually comes by way of community and relationships that are going down, and a lack of a sense of significance and meaning and purpose in our life. Because the things that give you the most meaning and purpose and a sense of communal belonging also rob you of freedom. Think about your vocation. If you have had a long-standing vocation in a certain direction, that came by way of you eliminating some options of freedoms to plunge deeply into that. Like for me, there were many nights when I had to stay up studying stuff I don't want to read. I would rather have the freedom to watch TV and go do something else that was much more easy and fun than sit under this desk lamp and study. Or sleep would be nice too. But you do that, you give up the freedom for a bigger purpose in life later on. Or those of you who are bound in a family or this church, and this what drew me to this church about how many people committed for a long season of time through thick and thin. That that binding commitment, the forfeiting of other choices to bail quickly for an easier, better, more pleasurable route to get fed, so to speak, that choice, you could do that, you have the freedom to, but it would come by way of a loneliness that would come on the back end. 
You do that. I knew remember people from my old church that every church they go to, they live for eight months, ten months, two years. They're like, oh, I love this place. They're like, yeah, until you know us. And you realize that we kind of are going to frustrate you because we all have our quirk, just like the last place you came from. And sure enough, man, two years later, they're like, I think I'm out. Yeah, because that's your pattern now. But they now, 10 years later, look back, had no sense of belonging because they insisted on their freedoms. And so for us to pursue any kind of character formation, a sense of purpose and vocation, and a sense of relational belonging, you give up some freedom for some binding commitment. The church has a sacrament for that. The Catholic Church uses the word sacrament. I think that's a great word that gives us the tangible reality that describes a heavenly reality. Heavenly, you cannot see that God has made a permanent commitment to you, but we have marriage. The church has marriage, and the function of us having marriage and promoting marriage and celebrating marriage is in order to point to the fact that we have a God who has made a permanent, exclusive, monogamous commitment to his people that he will never break. And when we either live into that in our own marriages and or celebrate that by living a chaste life as a faithful single person, you reflect that you have this kind of God. We have reduced marriage to just be a conduit of self-fulfillment and pleasure and or a thing that we just impose what our culture would see as weird arbitrary rules that are unnecessary and rob me of freedom. When in actuality, we have the goods, man. We have the goods. We have a story and a theology of sex and marriage that undergirds, that's so huge and significant and robust that we squeeze out in order to participate in our culture's narrative of marriage being a conduit for self-fulfillment and or a weird thing that still some ancient people still do. Man, we have it so much better than that. And so by fostering and, and promoting and celebrating permanent, monogamous, heterosexual commitment in the church as marriage, you preserve the fact, you tell the story that we have a God who's utterly distinctive than his people. Utterly distinctive than creation, but is made to be in perfect communion with those people that produces fruitfulness. Just like a man and a woman would. And he does it permanently, he never gives up, and he does it exclusively where he doesn't pick another 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 people when they mess up and when we live out that kind of story with our marriages and promote that within our community we get to tell that story to the world and invite them into another way because the other way that the culture does it it is utterly destructive to the people participating in it and to the, the casualties and the families on the outside and so we must resist that how y'all doing man y'all okay everybody happy we all good man everybody's good I tell that story continually because we live in a culture that insists on telling you a different story and it's not the good one. It doesn't produce life. And we have a choice to do something different. And I want to remind you what I've told you many times before, that these sermons are the start of a conversation, not the end of one. So if you're struck by any part of that, talk to me. I'm always down for the conversation. You can welcome to disagree with me. And then we can chat about it, man, over coffee. It'd be good. So we live in and foster those binding commitments to the church, in marriage, and we tell the story of a God who makes and keeps promises and never breaks them. We should pray on what it might look like for our community to have a covenant with each other. I heard rumors that we used to have one. We should think about that again, to reflect that we have this kind of God. I think it's all I'm going to say about that for today.
but that's obviously like hours more where that came from. So the next thing I want to mention real quick, just to close out, this is the last point about what does it mean if we have a God that still forms us through covenant with relationships, through him and his people, what that might call us to, and it's long-suffering and patience in a culture that idolizes immediacy. And I just want to consider, if you were belonging to the people of God, during that 450-year stretch between the promise to Abraham and Moses' arrival with Ten Commandments and the tabernacle, which we'll talk about that next week, and you stood right there and you could look back 250 years or forward 250 years, that's how much, like, you're in the middle of just terror. And you lived for 40 years or 80 years in that time. What do you have to hope for experience? What if God only called those people to pray and long patiently for God to fulfill his promises? Was their life worth it? We have to tell the story that it was. But yet we expect God to move very quickly all the time. That it's like, if I don't feel him today, well, he's clearly taking too long. I prayed that prayer three days ago. It should be clear by now what's going on. I had this grief and suffering last year. I need a bow on it by next month to kind of tie it up and tell me the reason why this happened. Otherwise, that was useless. When in reality, if you look at the people of God over the course of 4,000 years, man, this is, there might be generations that simply pray and hunger and pursue the presence of God and wait. And it was worth it. You're like, man, the church is dying. People are leaving the church all the time. It's haywire. They're wrapped up into politics. What are we going to do? Man, if it is you and three Christians huddled in a room praying for 40 years, it will have been worth it. You're doing something that is worth it on an eternal cosmic level, hungering for the presence of God and patiently waiting. And your body is in telling a story to the world that they get to be a part of too that is an alternative to their options. That is, I want something now. The other day, man, I just thought on the way up the steps, I need something new from Amazon. I literally clicked it on the way up the steps and it's good there the next day. You know, that's the, it forms me. To have that experience, I'm formed to then expect things to happen rapidly, but I have to read this and recognize when I just turn this page like this, like hundreds of years just happened, you know? And we have to be trained to have that sense of patience and long-suffering and waiting, and when we are in what one rabbi said, we're in a culture that has learned and desired to feel God more than to worship Him. When we have a God who makes a promise and tells us to wait, we worship in obedience, and we wait, and we long. And we know, though, that the God who made a promise 4,000 years ago to Abraham, fulfilled it, and made it to a climax in Jesus 2,000 years ago in Jesus, that God will indeed fulfill it, and all the waiting will have been worth it. It will be short in this big season of eternity that we'll have with God one day, where we will enjoy his presence without obstacle, without obstruction, because we remember at the center of that heavenly realm is the Lamb of God who was slain for our, on our behalf, who eliminated sin and forgave us once and for all, who conquered Satan and death and promised that we had life with him forever. It is for that we wait with patience. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we praise you. It is of such a privilege that we don't have to build an altar. We don't have to go to the temple. We can just pray to you because you are in us now. You've counted us worthy to be in us. And so we praise you that you are a God who has kept and fulfilled those promises. We praise you that we get to be alive on this side of the cross to look back on the story and know that 
and feel the story and remember the story that we now are heirs of Abraham and get your spirit living within our physical bodies. May you remind us of that. May you testify to our spirits that we are your children again. And may we remember that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.